Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today is a very special roundtable episode celebrating this finale of Andor, featuring interviews with the crew of this show, including composer Nicholas Bertel, supervising sound editor David Acord, visual effects producer TJ Falls, and finally, production designer Luke Hall and costume designer Michael Wilkinson. I hope you all enjoy, and I hope this is a nice companion to this end of such a fantastic series. I've been so blown away by it, and I hope you have too. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 145, The Crew of Andor. First up, our conversation with Nicholas Bertel. So our question is, we are loving how each title sequence has a slightly different piece of music. Mm -hmm. almost like a musical version of the opening crawl in the films. Where did that idea come from? And what was the process for composing a different musical introduction for each episode? That is a great question. It was, it was interesting. It wasn't, it wasn't something that we knew we were going to do in the very beginning. I worked with Tony for, you know, basically two years on, on, on all the music for Andor for season one. So it was something that I think about a year and a half ago <laughs> when I was presenting him some of the early possibilities for, for a theme uh, for Cassian, but also really for Andor, for the whole sort of show itself. When I was showing him all the, you know, this one piece, I was showing him all the stems and all the different elements of it. And I was like, you know, I, I like the big version, but I was like, you know, when you just hear the cellos, it's really beautiful. And also, you know, if you just hear like the synthesizers, it's kind of cool. And so we kind of looked at each other, we're like, I mean, maybe we do a few of these. <laughs> and then it actually very quickly became something where we realized that there was a concept there of evolving it over the course of the whole season so that we could tailor each main title to what was about to happen and sometimes sort of relate to both what has just happened and where we're about to go in the next episode. So, so it became this kind of like a, you know, calibration almost for each episode. And, uh, and the process of doing it was, um, it was a lot of work. <laughs> it was every single, every, every episode, um, you know, we scored these in, and I can talk a lot about all this for sure, but we scored them in London, recorded with orchestra. I did all the synthesizer work. Um, and basically every, every single episode that I was scoring, I would say to myself, you know, what is the main title I'm going to do for this? And I would, you know, Tony lives 11 blocks from me. So he was here all the time sitting on this couch, actually. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I would say, I think this feels, this feels good. And we worked so closely together on each of these and tailored each one to sort of what we were feeling at the at the time. One of the things I love most about your work is it really feels like your music takes us into the minds of the characters opposed, as opposed to just sitting atop them. I think this is super present, especially in the past to present suite and in our most recent episode that we saw, episode eight, where we have yeah. these beautiful string orchestrations, but this very kind of tilted synthesizer. Uh, when you're writing music for Cassie, or a particular world, what do you feel like you need to understand about the character or the situation in order to approach writing the music for it? It's a great question. It, I think it gets to kind of this the heart of the whole process in a way, you know, because every, I think every project, no matter what it is, you know, every show, every, every film deserves its own sonic landscape, its own sort of DNA. And the complicating factor on a on something as epic as Andor is that every episode in a way also demands its own approach. So 
Um, you know, you were talking about the, the most recent episode that has its own whole sonic palette in a way. But to calibrate that to sort of get into what it is, especially for Cassian, that was something that it really evolved for me over time. I start every project at, at zero, you know, like I try to be as blank a slate as possible. And through conversations with Tony, through reading some, I read these very top secret early scripts, you know, um, and then starting to see imagery, eventually starting to see footage, um, and then and then edited episodes. I feel I'm learning along the way as that's happening. So it's not like there's sort of one thing where I sort of realize, oh, I think this is it. It's actually something about, I experiment with a lot of different ideas. And I think over time, you sort of discover that certain things resonate with the picture certain things when you're you know especially like you know we I did a lot of on-camera music actually before they had shot everything I mean, that's a whole that was a whole endeavor unto itself but um you know once I started like working on episode one because we we did it in order in that way and uh once I started working on episode one there were certain things that just it felt like Cassian like certain motifs certain progressions and the thing I knew was that as he evolved, as he learned about himself, as he learned about his universe and the struggle that's going on, he that that certainly would change, and you know, and it changes through episode eight. Certainly changes all the way going. You know, there's a lot more obviously to come, but I think it's about it's sort of an abstract answer, but it's kind of about feeling. It's about feelings. It's about feeling that there for Cassian in particular. I think there's this questioning that he's doing, that he doesn't even know he's doing, I think sometimes, you know? He doesn't know, he wants to know about his past, he wants to know about his present, but at the same time, I think there are certain things he may never know. I think the music itself is trying to capture that in a sense. The main title, in a way, you know, you can imagine a main title as being sort of a big immediate concept. I actually wrote the main title, so it starts almost at nothing. It starts like kind of just with this pulsing, this kind of lurking feeling. And as it grows over 35.2 seconds, you know, it goes, it, it, it has this final crescendo culmination and then it goes away as well. So there's this kind of like, it's sort of discovering itself and then it vanishes. And I think maybe there's a metaphor there with 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 Cassian too, that he's he doesn't know. And then, he, and then we have glimpses of learning and discovering and realizing and then maybe something else happens. <laughs> you just mentioned that you start each project with a with a blank canvas and then you build from there. So what will you take with you from season one as you start to develop and you continue the themes? Obviously, we know where we're going with the characters, but obviously we don't know how they get there. Right. So what have you learned and what will you take with you as you begin to approach the journey in season two? another great question these that's a big question too that i don't really i don't even know the answers to that i think i would say i think you know um the the definite starting point i would have and again i haven't you know i'm i'm talking to tony right now we're already planning certain things out but i haven't actually you know begun the the official scoring of season two yet um but you know my my sense would be there are very there as we, you know, like I was saying, as I'm, you know, as I score a project, you learn as you go, you discover things, which I think is fascinating too. I feel that, you know, it's not a science. This is very much something that every episode sort of teaches you things. And, you know, you might try a theme out in one episode and it really feels right. And then you might try the same theme out in another episode and it doesn't work at all. You know, it just it, the, 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 the film just rejects it, you know? So I have certain themes that I think feel like they're related to the dynamics of 
the struggle of characters. There's there are many themes. Certainly, you know, there's there's themes. You know, just big picture. I mean, some of them. There's obviously a sort of Andor scope theme. There's motifs related to Cassian. There's there's motifs certainly around Mon Mothma and the rebellion. There's uh, every episode has its has certain unique signatures too that are almost like uh, latent within those episodes. And I'm imagining that there will be a lot of individuation as we go to so there's probably many things that i haven't yet thought of that that we will that we will come to um but i think many of the of the large scale themes are certainly things that i imagine um carrying over luthan luthan's theme you know which obviously intersects with with many things the isb theme that i that i wrote though so those are those are some of the things that i would imagine but again i actually have not read any scripts so i can't say for sure just about anything <laughs> My name is Caitlin from Sky Talker. So nice to talk to you today. Sure. Um, you mentioned this previously a question ago, but I wanted to learn some more about the music that was played on set during filming. This seems so cool and sure. special that you got to do this. Without spoiling anything, can you discuss how that yeah. decision came about? Sure. Um, you you know, you've seen some of it so far. There's definitely more to come, but it was be, just for purely almost practical considerations, that was the stuff that Tony and I began with first because it had to be done. And, and it was really important to both of us that it be really done on set. So, you know, we I did a lot of demoing and pre-records, but there people actually recorded stuff on set. You know, some of those things, for example, if I'm thinking uh, like episode three, the alarm signaling on Ferrex, you know, that was a whole kind of percussion suite that I wrote and each rhythm had its own meaning that Tony and I would talk about. So there's a there's a rhythm at the very top of it where um, that sort of signals like a message is coming. And then there's other rhythms that sort of join. So that was that was one example of that that uh, we worked on a lot. And you know it's so complicated too because you come up with these things and then they're done on set and then you see how that worked. And then in post you sort of then try to figure out okay well really big questions like you know does the score have to be in the same tempo as the signaling? Or if it's in the same tempo, does it work? Or do And the interesting thing is that there's no right answer for these. Like, so for example, with the signaling, it was important that the score didn't acknowledge it because when you started acknowledging it, it started feeling like the signaling was score and it's not, you're seeing it, you know? So that was like, okay, don't, don't do that. But for example, the time grappler, um, that was another example of on camera, you know, we had to have him, you know, <laughs> swinging that mallet. And um, that was something where we actually wrote this very elaborate series of individual musical idents for different times of day for different instructions that they were giving the people of Ferrex, you know, at different moments of the day. And so that was something where at times the score actually is in the same key as the time graph, because sometimes it felt weird if it wasn't, you know, so, so those were the types of things both in pre-current production, you know, post-production, we had to figure those out. Another example is the Aldani Eye Festival, the chanting and all of that music, you know, uh, I wrote that music, Tony wrote those wonderful lyrics, <laughs> shall we say, you know, uh, you know, th those were all different things, each of which that was, that was very complex too, because the score in those sequences was, was so large scale. And, and, and that was one where it, it did have to sort of connect in certain ways. So those were those were some examples of the process and the and the challenges and and uh and there's definitely more to come. So that's <laughs> that's what I would say about that. 
Um, what was the sort of musical recipe that you concocted for the score? And when did you know when you had nailed it? Wow, that's 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 a tough one. I think uh, I don't know if you ever know if you nail something. You know, I think you're always just putting in the time and the effort, and you're sort of uh, you're going on your on your instinct that if it's working, if it's resonating for for you, you know, for me, my hope is that then it resonates for other people, you know. And if it's working for me and Tony, then I get more confidence that it's working, you know. So it's it's a lot of you know it's a lot of time and it's a lot of effort really. And the and and the the formula, you know, if there, it was really from the very start. Um, Tony and Kathy Kennedy were so supportive and so you know really clear about wanting a unique soundscape for Andor and about really you know hoping that it could have kind of its own sound palette and 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 unique new themes and textures and so that really gave me the sense of um, not just support but freedom to explore things. And I had this instinct very early on that obviously I love working with orchestras and I, you know, it's one of the joys, the greatest joys of, of being a composer, I think is getting to write for orchestra. But at the same time, there was something with Andor that immediately to me, I was drawn to these sort of um, older analog synthesizers that, you know, and I don't often get to write with a, with a sound palette like that, but there was something about, you know, perhaps it was the idea that we're, you know, I, I grew up, loving Star Wars. I mean, I think Return of the Jedi, I think was the first, my, my parents, so I think it was the first movie I, they took me to in a movie theater when I was like three, you know? So I I, I love Star Wars and and the the idea that this comes before that, you know, this is early, this kind of earlier than that trilogy. This is before Rogue One, you know, there was something almost like retro that I was thinking like, oh, we can, what would sound like we're before this, you know? And there was something about, there was something about this, this sort of retro analog synthesis that felt like we were going to the before stages of something that could then grow into hopefully where, what we all know eventually, you know, the, the sort of maj majesty that, that, that Star Wars is, you know? So, um, so that was maybe an early instinct I had and, and certainly not everything is synthesizer. You know, there's, there's a, we recorded with a huge string orchestra and brass and percussion and uh, amazing musicians. Uh, and uh, so there's, there's all of that, but I think that was, those were some early instincts that I had. And I think the, the actual, um, you know, uh, orchestration itself really varies uh, episode to episode. That was my other sort of point to myself, I think, was that every episode we're in different planets, we're in different places, we're in different parts of the story. So it felt like it really had to have, each episode had to have its own unique thought process, which certainly added to the work that Tony and I gave ourselves. <laughs> Hi, Nicholas, Brandon from Talking Bay 94. I would love, this is the most tense show I've ever watched, I feel like, every week. <laughs> and the music is a huge part of that. And the, the pulses and the backing behind it is just a huge part of how this show functions. I'd love to dive in. Yeah to how you've constructed that and how you play that against what's happening on screen. There, there are varying degrees of tension in different episodes. And some of that is really Tony and I, you know, us talking about what's happening and, and what is, you know, what's the scope of the current endeavor. So there are certain episodes where, um, where the tension is really high and I'm, I don't want to give anything away with where things go, but there are, 
I would say there are certain things that I do perhaps, you know, to add to attention. One thing that I was doing a lot was um, there are certain, you know, there are certain orchestral concepts and certain musical ideas you can do to, to, to increase tension. One thing that I added was I felt it was really important that things had to feel like they weren't from earth. You know what I mean? Like I really wanted it to feel like this is not our galaxy, you know? And so there's a, um, You'll hear it in a lot of places. There's a sort of detuning that I do with things quite often in 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 the show, both with real instruments and also with synthesizers, um, to give a sense of it. I mean, to me, it just starts. It, it doesn't just feel in a faraway galaxy. To me, it also feels like something's not quite right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and when you do that, coupled with, for example, in you know, rising elements, or when you do that with lurking pulsing low i mean there there's there's a sort of uh stew that you concoct you know and um and every single one of those i mean i would i i would really stress like every single moment in the show is a unique musical piece there's no we we didn't like like i mean maybe this is our own you know <laughs> like uh a, you know masochism or something like that but like <laughs> like we really every we wrote every single scene has something unique, you know? And that's, Tony is so passionate about this. We, you know, I was starting to say it before, but we really, we underestimated how much work this was gonna be. And we had already thought it was gonna be a lot of work. So that was for sure. But we vastly underestimated how much work this was gonna be. We worked constantly on this, like constantly. And so the question about the tension, every single moment where that's happening, it's you can picture Tony and me right here being like, all right, well, what are we, what are we doing here? <laughs> like, and then being like, it's, oh, I don't think it's enough. You know, what are, you know, and there's also certain things too. For example, I think there's often as things are, in, are increasing in scope, for example, I think sometimes the outs of certain scenes rise even to, or crescendo or culminate, you know? So there's a sort of like moment to moment uh, escalation that you might mm-hmm. feel in certain episodes. But I think there's also like a inside certain of these scenes, there's, a gradually increasing something's wrong feeling, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible, thank you. <laughs> Hi, Nicholas. Gustavo with Trial of the Force. Thank you so hey. much for spending some time with us. Uh, my question has to do with like how we create the soundscapes for Andor, and it's rooted with how we experience Star Wars, as you know, for the past 40 years, we've grown so accustomed to yeah. what the sounds of Star Wars uh, needs to be based on those original scores from the nine trilogy films. And now in this, you know, in this new post Skywalker era with all these composers coming in, there's been a sort of reverence to what Star Wars needs to sound like. And now with Ludwig in Mandalorian, we've gotten to see some departures of what that can be, but still in a way grounded into, mm-hmm. you know, that Williams soundscape, so to speak. With Andor, though, it feels like we've broken the wheel and we've kind of, you know, done something completely different that it's not you know, rooted in that sense in terms of like having orchestration and synthesizers and a lot of different percussive elements that we mm-hmm. haven't experienced before. So yeah. my question is like, how have we reinterpreted what Star Wars sounds like and how do you decide when to use orchestration versus like synth and electronic elements for like those ex- moments like in the Niamos Marlana club mix, which is now the best track in the whole <laughs> of the Star Wars canon, I think. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, um, the, the answer is really moment to moment. I mean, you know, like I was saying, it's, it's a, it was a constant conversation. Um, I think that in general, towards the beginning of season one, um, I was, 
I wasn't trying to avoid orchestra, but I think there's something dark and very real that Tony was going for. Um, there's a sense that, you know, it's it's like we're right with Cassian. We're, you know, we, we, we're in his POV. We don't know what's happening. And yet um, we, you know, you see before the episode, you see the Star Wars logo. And yet immediately you're sort of, where are we? And I think that early on, I was trying to almost, uh, you know, really embrace that feeling of worse, you know, you, maybe this is Star Wars, but maybe this is Star Wars you haven't seen before. This is a part of the galaxy we haven't been to in a sense, you know, feeling wise for sure. And so, um, you know, I'm the, I, I adore the John Williams scores. I mean, like they're, you know, John Williams is such is beyond a legend to me, you know? Uh, but I, so I, but I think in some ways it was, um, it was a very conscious thing of saying, you know what, we're going for something different here. And when orchestra would come in, I think it felt like it was right. You know, it felt like there are certain elements, I think, especially in the first few episodes, the first time you really have probably a large scale orchestra enter the picture is the end of episode three, where it's the wraparound bringing everything sort of together in the past present suite. Um, but also even there, you're noticing there's a lot of close mic'd individual instruments. It's sort of even mic'd. I even recorded some of the music differently. So there's, I think I was trying to go for a very like intimate feel in some of these things. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a dark synthesizer edge to things. There is a sort of um, hard percussive edge to things, but there's also, I think like a very emotional close mic'd solo instrument feel at times too. That's sort of some of the first few episodes, even down to hearing the leaves and Canary, you know, that's part of the score, um, you know, hearing all those different percussive sort of forest elements, you know, sort of like a close feeling, I guess is what I would say. And as the scope of the series increases and as we learn more, and as the drama increases, to me, that's where orchestra then should enter into the picture even more, you know, there's nothing grander than for scope than than a beautiful symphony orchestra. And yet, like you were saying on Niamos, there's always room for more synthesizer, I think. So there's definitely, you know, that's not going away. And that's certainly part of, I just feel that's a part of that became a part of the this certainly season one. And to your to your point about mentioning the Niamos track, you know, the thing that we thought about when when I initially wrote that piece for actually the Morlana Club in episode one. And I had this idea that I pitched to Tony and, and he was totally in for it where I was like, you know, what if the diegetic music in some of these places is this same piece of music that's just sort of of this very well-known hit in the galaxy? Like there's just this piece that, you know, you hear the Morlana club version when you're in Coruscant, you know, you hear it's like a diplomatic kind of lounge version, you know? And then when you're on Yamos, you're, well, that's where, that's like, where it is, that's the galaxy mix of Niamos, you know, you're there, you know, so, so though that was kind of the idea. And, uh, and it just, you know, I remember saying to him, I was like, when we enter Niamos, I think we have to hear this track, you know. All right, next we have this roundtable conversation with supervising sound editor David Acord, who's also the voice of Grogu. No one asked that question, but that's fine. And visual effects producer TJ Falls. Uh, really, really great. Please enjoy. In Andor, we actually have this whole scene where Bix is about to be interrogated uh, yeah. using the screams of an alien species. Now, this sound is built up so much, yet we never hear it. 
We only hear the screams of Bix reacting to it. And this isn't the first time silence has been used to communicate in Star Wars. I'm thinking about the Holdo maneuver in The Last Jedi and the seismic charges and attack of the clones. So my question is, why is it that sometimes silence is more impactful than sound? Speaking uh, in this particular scene, it's a it's a horrific moment for for Bix. You know, she's you know, she's being interrogated. Uh, it's the classic torture thing where her method of torture is being sort of shown to her and kind of built up to her and to the audience as well. So we're kind of in it with Bix now, and we're kind of also anticipating this torture, this thing that's going to happen, and then kind of a classic horror movie moves like you don't always show the creature the thing the bad guy and let the audience kind of let their imagination which is always going to be more terrifying than what you're going to right show or hear mm -hmm. um and of course you know going to absolute silence and it goes to absolute silence there except for bix's breathing and eventual scream and of course adria arjun is perfect carries that I'm Brandon from Talking Bay 94. A question for you both. You both had extraordinary experience working on many other Star Wars projects. What differentiates and or from those and how has your work been impacted by maybe those differences? I, I, can, I can jump in here first. I mean, you, you're, you're right. I've had a lot of experiences as David has uh, across a number of shows and every show presents different challenges, but it's also the different creative opportunities that really let us uh, explore the different worlds. And what I find so fascinating is, is the journeys that our characters take and the way that we're then able to portray that from a visual standpoint. Uh, and Andor was very interesting in that Tony's vision from the very beginning was a very grounded, very earthly uh, type of experience. So as we approached our shots, we took everything from a a real world aspect of things. So even things you know that we've seen before like Coruscant uh, we started from, you know, almost a, a New York, 20th century New York type of atmosphere, you know, large buildings, Chrysler buildings, that sort of thing. But then Mo and Leo, our supervisor, and working with our production designer, Luke Cole as well, started going, well, how does this work and how would this work in, in reality? So we started looking at Tokyo and other cities and going, well, if you had districts and different things, you know, how would how would it function in, in the real world? And from there, we were able to extrapolate and take it into you know, the CG component of what it is. And, and we approached every scene, every environment in that same similar fashion, which was, you know, really, to, to me, very exciting, but also, I think, helped, you know, build the world that, that everybody wanted with Andor that we, uh, that we ended up with. Uh, George Lucas placed a huge emphasis on visual effects and sound design. How do your teams work together to achieve a cohesive look and feel for sound for Andor? Well, that's a great question, uh, TJ. <laughs> yeah, it's it's always what what I love about the way that we do our Star Wars projects. It's always very collaborative, uh, and if you look at things like you know the Eye of Aldani, as that developed and built, you know we had things of of you know, meteor impacts on on the ship and 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 the buildup of what those sounds are and how it related to to what you're hearing and experiencing in, in that journey affects the way that we then visually portray some of the buildup of, of, of the journey. And that's just one, you know, little anecdote in terms of the way that we approach it. But it's, it's, it's fun because there always is a bit of back and forth, uh, you know, as we all work and collaborate together. Do you Absolutely. agree with that, David? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think um, as much as uh, the visual effects always inform what we do, you know, we want to see what something looks like before we can uh, tell you what it sounds like. That's that's kind of um, how we work. Um, but sometimes, yeah, sometimes we'll we'll create a sound um, early on, and visual effects will kind of take that uh, into consideration uh, when they're when they're finishing the design for it. And so, yeah, there's there always is a little bit of back and forth um, with that. So the question I've got for both of you is, with so much of a legacy of Star Wars, you know, almost approaching 50 years of both sound design and visual effects, what do you, how do you approach the project? What do you bring with you when you start out a project like this? Um, well, Let's see. I mean, like like TJ, we've worked on several Star Wars uh, projects. Um, worked on Rogue One, uh, for example, did a co-design um, position on, on Rogue One. So kind of coming into Andor with a bit of knowledge on how the Gilroys like to work and what their uh, aesthetic is, is, is helpful to, to start. But of course, you there's a larger universe you have to consider um, as well with all the other the, the shows and movies. And going back to the legacy movies, um, which of course Andor and Rogue One kind of directly tie into the original. So it's it's a tricky tightrope to walk with if you've got a, a show with a particular aesthetic um, like Andor, and you've got you know say New Hope, which has a somewhat different aesthetic you know there there are some similarities they both have that sort of classic star wars um old new tech sort of thing where every it's like high tech but everything's a little rusty and a little broken you know um so that 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 is helpful that they both carry that same aesthetic but in terms of sound design yeah i mean like like, like the tie fighters in in uh, andor like you obviously you're going to use a classic tie fighter sound there, but we, you know, gave it a little extra, you know, we gave it a little extra beef. It's got a little extra heavy jet engine underneath of it. There's an extra creature roar that that happens with it on that pass by on the field. So we, we you kind of make what's old new, you know, and you kind of honor the legacy, but you want to kind of update it and give it that, um, you know, and or polish. Yeah, I'll just echo a little bit what David said there in terms of the visual aesthetic. It's that same thing as honoring uh, what came before, but not being restricted by it either. Uh, the universe of Star Wars is large enough that there's so many different places we're able to explore and approaches we can get that you still have the same base feeling that that you want from the legacy movies and, and, and the entire universe, but that we're able to expand and, and really bring a unique feel uh, you know, while still having it interrelate with things that we we did in Rogue and what we've done with the uh, the surrounding movies as well. Hi guys, Mark from Fantastracks here. It's kind of been touched on already, but the you're bringing new sounds to the show and new visuals to the show, but it's got to be Star Wars familiar. It's still got to feel like Star Wars. People have got to connect with it in the same way that they connected with the originals. I know you've kind of touched on that already, but how do you... What's the equation there? What are you looking for that makes you think this blaster still sounds like a Star Wars blaster? That ship still looks like a Star Wars ship. Where do you find the meeting point for those things? You know, um, having I worked on my first Star Wars project I worked on was episode two was Attack of the Clones. And I was assisting Matt Wood and Ben Burt. I did the same role on episode three and then on into Clone Wars and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, so I've been 
doing a lot of Star Wars for the past couple of decades, and uh, you just kind of get a feel um, over time, especially learning under, you know, the masters, uh, what a certain thing should sound like to live in that world. And, you know, kind of, again, echoing that sort of feel of it's got to be kind of grounded um, and have that sort of, uh, you know, a little rusty kind of feel, a little greedy kind of feel. And going into Andor, uh, like Rogue One, uh, it's, it's, kind of that but even more so uh it's it's um it's even more uh gritty a little a little more uh i guess um almost purely diegetic uh in in sound some of the some of the guns we kind of go for are um maybe not as star warsy as uh, as we've heard in the past some of them are some of them aren't um that was more a, sort of a choice of you know for, for variety than anything else but also we wanted the guns to sound like guns like like real guns with a sort of edge you know uh sci-fi edge to it but and to me in that way it also sort of maintained that um uh, you know grounded you know tony gilroy uh gritty diet you know aesthetic as well yeah i mean i mean very very similarly you know ilm has has done star wars since the very beginning uh, you know, as we as we know, as really came out of, out of Star Wars is, is why there's the company. Uh, so there is again that taste, that feel that 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 one knows as Star Wars. You know, we look towards you know Ralph McQuarrie's artwork and some of the very you know original you know areas where these concepts had come from. Uh, you know, but it is it's that level of experience. While we don't want to necessarily become stale, you want to push the envelope. You want to create new things. There's a there's a you know a framework. That we work around and you know, in in collaboration with the production designer with tony with ilm we're able to to build that visual world that still seems familiar and yet lets us explore into to you know the new shiny things as well so that we've got you know that excitement that, that one expects from star wars without going too far afield hi everybody jason from blast points here so good to talk to you all so We've seen visual effects in this new era of Star Wars evolving, and we've seen uh, storytelling, especially with Andor, evolving with Star Wars. So as huge fans of Star Wars sound, how is the craft of creating sound for this new era of Star Wars evolving? Well, um, it's a tricky thing because if you're you're trying to stay in a world um, that George Lucas and Ben Burke created sonically um, in 77, uh, 80 and 82, uh, 81, wait, 83, yes. Um, so uh, you're you're going back quite a ways uh, in terms of like, there's some very old sound effects there. And then when Ben is making sound effects in, you know, for, for New Hope or for Empire, let's say, um, you know there aren't you know like like uh for instance the tie fighters never lifted off the ground and took off they never dropped down from a hanging thing and those there, there was never those sound effects so the some of the tricks that you have to sort of do are okay this is what a tie fighter sounds like we all know what it sounds like so what does it sound like when it takes off or sets down and you have to kind of create a sound uh based on the original sound uh that kind of fits in that world that's sort of an example i guess I'm, I'm giving of what it is like to sort of create sounds within an existing universe um is is uh you're you have some license to color outside the lines 
Um, but uh, you don't want to sort of make a habit of that. You know, it's there is a world you want to honor and live within. But then, then at the same time, you have to modernize it. And we have, you know, sound systems at home are, are much better than what they were, you know, 50 years ago. And so um, there's an expectation, I think, now um, of a certain uh, sound um, with modern soundtracks that we hear in the theater every day. Um, to to uh, update that sort of tone um, for the for the show, Does that makes sense. Did I go off the rails. No, made total sense. Loved it. Pete Fletcher from Around the Galaxy. This is a question for both of you. On every one of the episodes of of our show, we have a ten question segment, and one of those questions happens to be, "What is your favorite Star Wars sound effect?" And as we know, of course, Star Wars has its own very unique sound. So, what is what are both of your favorite Star Wars sound effects, and and why? Uh, well, I'll jump in there for for that one, since 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 you know, Dave, you're the sound guy. Uh, my my favorite. <laughs> sound effect is the screaming TIE fighter. I find it uh, frightening. I find it exhilarating. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great question because there's so many good sounds, but when you hear, you know, even in the, in the distance, even the, the slight you know, approach of a TIE fighter, you know exactly what it is. Uh, you know to be afraid and you know that something big and bad is going to happen. Uh, so I, I mean, I think by far that's my favorite. Yeah, that's that's a good one. The the, the tie. There's something in it that's um, it, it taps into some ancient part of your brain to kind of be afraid somehow, like some like you know prehistoric thing. Um, but uh, I also love the the lightsabers. I think that that's a that's a really great one. Um, it, it's there's nothing quite like that. And I if you yeah, I can't imagine what else that would sound like. You know what. That is a perfect example of like, you know, that's perfect sound design. That is exactly what that thing should sound like. And I know that that's, you know, it, it, if it was something else, you'd probably say that as well. But I can't think of anything else um, in the sci-fi world that is more perfectly sound designed than the lightsaber. When As you guys were designing the visual effects, you know, one of the things that has been so interesting about Andor is it's not rooted in sort of the force side of things. And so you've got just a different palette that you're pulling from. You don't have the lightsabers, you don't have the force lightning and all the stuff that we're used to and others. You know, what were, were some of the specific choices that you needed to make in order to make sure that it still felt like Star Wars while it's such a different story and it's a different look? Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a you know an interesting a question. It it really comes down to the collaboration we had with our production designer and making sure that we still had that every story that we told and every scene and shot was still a Star Wars component of it. And so you'll still see reminiscent shapes. You'll see reminiscent uh, uh, colors. You'll see you know the the way that you know whether it be um, you know the, the way you know things are are. It, explosions take place and you go, Hey, this is, this is a, a, a the, the factory, the abandoned factory in, in episode three is a good example of this, where you still have, you know, these giant anvils that are clearly otherworldly and, and very star Wars inspired falling down as people are, 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 are getting out of the way. And it's, you don't need force powers for that. You don't need you know, uh, something beyond the blasters to make that an entirely Star Wars-y scene. Uh, and it was it was looking at each episode and each moment and going, hey, 
we're doing what we always do. We're making Star Wars shots. We're making a Star Wars aesthetic. Uh, and just because we don't have some of these other components doesn't mean that we can't continue to make Star Wars choices in, in new and interesting ways. Wonderful. I would love, again, to, to talk about both of y'all's career journeys and getting to Andor, especially with how we're viewing it on television screens. And we've touched on that briefly, but as Star Wars has moved more to the TV realm, and as both of y'all have worked more and more in making that a more holistic experience for people watching at home, if that's challenging at all, or if that's been something to adapt to for your teams as you've tried to create something for people that are just watching on a couch rather than in a movie theater? Um, for for us, I mean, is it is it it is challenging. It, it's it's more content uh, that we that we build together. But what I find really exciting about it is it's more content put together. So you have a more a better opportunity to get in depth and tell you know stories that have uh, just more uh, uh, you know in depth uh, approach in dealing with your characters, but also with the visual storytelling of it as well. And so while you know, there's a, a, a different methodology in terms of, you know, the way we shoot things and the practical approach of, of, of what it is. The output, the intention is that it's, it is a seamless journey. And whether it's a film or a television show, that you're getting that same level of expectation for what it looks like and how it makes you feel, really. Yeah, that's the same for us. It's it's always, the, we approach it like, you know, for, for Andor, it's like a whatever it is, a nine and a half, 10 hour movie. That's, that's kind of how we, we approach it. And, um, we, you know, we mix in native Atmos and, uh, you know, we, we have a full complement of, uh, editors and mixers and we're, we're, we have, a you know, one of the greatest composers working right now on the show. And of course, you know, Tony Gilroy is like, uh, he's the master. Uh, so it's, there's uh, no punches pulled um, on on these uh, streaming shows for sure. Hi, I'm Caitlin, the other half of Sky Talkers. I wanted to ask specifically about this arc that this most recent arc, episodes eight through ten. Um, are there any specific themes or keywords associated with these arcs that help set the look and sound of them apart from each other? Well, um, well, just to take the prison for example, then the main uh, sound thing in the prison is uh, um, is the you know the factory area, the floor, the, you know, the worker area, those seven tables. Um, that's uh, uh, that's sort of the you know I guess the the sound of the prison in a way uh, is that sort of that rhythm of all the workers at different tables trying to beat each other so they can get either flavor in their food or you know not get you know shocked juxtaposed against there's sort of like an eerie quiet um in the in when there's when they're not doing that those are their that's what the the prison is it's like if you're not working then you've got sort of the dead silenced to kind of reflect on your, where you're at in that moment compared to like you know ferrix which is kind of a bustling town and uh it's kind of gritty and dusty and we kind of push the foley a little bit in there to kind of really feel all those greedy footsteps and, and and that sort of thing and in the prison it's a little more subdued um unless you're on the factory floor does that answer the question i feel like it yeah i mean it's, and similarly for us as well i mean as as in this the latest arc as we're getting more into the world of that the imperials have created you you know visit you know the isb and then you go back to the prison you really st see the the sterility of it all and it's 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 understanding and it's it's storytelling in a way of of the 
the the order that's created by the imperial where again you know similar to what they would say and for for barracks where it's a little more rough and tumble a little bit more um you know out you know the outskirts a, 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 a little more wild west but we've evolved into understanding what a more free society would have looked like at one point and then you know what this organized uh really structured uh imperial rhythm is of well hey we're in a prison and um and there's one order that you have to follow. Finally, we have the conversation with production designer Luke Hall and costume designer Michael Wilkinson, which really added so much depth to what we see on screen for Andor, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I wanted to uh, lead off with a question. Uh, the Easter egg placement in Andor has really arguably been the most subtle of all of the live action Disney that we've seen so far, but also the deepest cuts. So, uh, Luke, how do you work with the story group to make sure fans who who are fans of the lore are served well, but at the same time not excluding some of the, the casual fans? I think it's more about just making sure that we don't start from a basis of it being fan service. So it's like, it's... <laughs> It's not the first thing I think about. I think the best way to answer that is like, there's a lot of us on the show um, and we're a good mix of people who have worked on Star Wars, who are Star Wars fans and people who have absolutely no context of Star Wars. And so within that, we're all filmmakers. So we're trying to make environments that feel correct in the context, that everything's there that should be, uh, and that tells a story and gives us a very kind of character-based environment. And then within that, like, okay, so what can we put in from Star Wars that rem- not reminds us we're there, but actually would be there in that in that environment, in the star, star Wars galaxy, rather than try and slip things in for fun. So Lucent's Gallery is a very good example of something where every artifact in there, the whole collection needed to work together to tell a story of lost culture and interesting artifacts from across the galaxy, uh, of which some things uh are there that we can recognize from previous movies or shows or, or whatever so um i think that's more the approach it's like never never are we led by by that it's more about things that would be that enrich that environment on that level should be there hi luke i'm gustavo from Triad of the force and my question had to do with coruscant and the designs that had to go into coruscant we see that there's three main areas that we're telling our stories in it's uh, Cyril's mom's apartment, the ISB, and then Mon Mothma's apartment. And I feel it's a really big contrast, this Coruscant that we see in Andor versus the Coruscant that we saw in Attack of the Clones, which was very bright, saturated colors, lots of neon. It was a very welcoming environment. And when we see like these three locales, it's quite the opposite to an extent. There's brutalist architecture, uh, very minimal modernism, and then some art deco and uh, Mon Mothma's apartment. So what was the process of design to like do an anti-Coruscant, so to speak, that then framed the themes of each character's story? You've almost answered your own question there, but um, <laughs> the uh, I think this is a good one for my, my, Michael to answer as well, because I think what he did with the costumes in Coruscant was phenomenal. Because they, they, I mean, you probably, I'm not a massive fan of how Coruscant looked in the prequels. So, and I think the thing with that is it's just environment background. So uh, what I wanted to do, it's, it's, it's literally the hardest thing, and I could talk for hours about why it's hard to do. And if we're gonna do it, we have to do it well. So, uh, and you don't want it to, every environment in Coruscant to be told via CGI 
you know, lead element. Uh, and equally, when you're composing those CGI shots, you don't want them to feel like they wouldn't exist in a real world. So the, um, the, the kind of core principle of Coruscant is its height, its verticality, it's three miles high, and its sort of dichotomy is made up of uh literally told you know that it's sort of upper at the top and the middle and middle coruscant the lower kind of in lower coruscant we don't touch on lower coruscant that much so then it becomes character led which is interesting so and then you want to look at cities like tokyo and new york and like what what is a vertical what is the language of a vertical city and what makes that interesting that's kind of the approach so it was never about trying to make coruscant look like Coruscant or Ralph Macquarie's Coruscant or anything like that. It's a, it, should, it should smell like that. It should have that nostalgia, but it should fit in Star Wars. It shouldn't feel futuristic or sci-fi. And yet it, I want it to, I want to understand it as a, a real place that could exist. And equally, we don't necessarily need to always be away from it. We want to inhabit areas within it. So it's, it's really complicated, but essentially the principles are materials. Like, it's like it should be monochromatic, it should be concrete, it should be steel, it should be glass, it should be things like this. It's hard, it's, it's inhumane. It, it's, there's a total lack of organic material there. And you just sort of make these decisions and you build it up and you realize what starts to work and what doesn't work. And, and then Edie's, is a great one because I, I mean, the idea behind it is like, I reckon she bought that apartment 20 years ago. She had a view across Coruscant and then the whole city grew up around her and, and it got lost like she did. Uh, and, and it's got that kind of Baker-like cream versus say the clinical sterility of the ISB or Mon's sort of, it's kind of like Mon's place is almost like an embassy building that was given to her. So it's got values of her Chandrillian culture and yet also, it's it's got this sort of uh lack of uh, i don't know comfort that it brings with coruscant so i don't know if that answers your question but i really do think you should ask michael that question because um uh, i think we both talked a lot about that planet in particular i think from my point of view um we did what we do on all planets you know luke and i uh, talk really deep dived into the the, the culture and we wanted to build actual real authentic societies and not just like random colors and textures for each planet but we thought about you know the culture what materials and technologies would they have how is it a stratified society is it a unified society you know we thought Coruscant would be very diverse there would be people from all over the galaxy there it's the seat of government there's a senate there there's all sorts of embassies but within, we also go deep into the core of Coruscant. So we see the different societies. Uh, we see the people that might, you know, service the buildings, the lower Coruscant. We go deeper and deeper until people are engaging in more nefarious activities. And so we wanted to represent that entire spectrum of culture. It's not like you just go to the rental house and you buy six of these things and you dive in different colors and that's your culture. We just wanted to think about every background player would have a backstory and uh, a reason for being on screen. Hi, I'm Chase, AKA That Gay Jedi. I, Michael, my question is for you. I remember hearing a story that you had about Amy Adams in and her character in American Hustle and sort of this stain that you came across and found in a vintage dress that ended up becoming sort of a perfect story moment for the script and for the story. Um, so I was wondering if there are any happy accidents in your costuming process for Andor? Ooh, that's a good question. Let's mm -hmm. see. Happy accidents. I mean, I think it was actually a little bit 
There weren't actually so many accidents on this on this set, were there, uh, Luke? In the sense that the, everything was much more. There was this endless discussion and thinking about things. So I think it was American Hustle was very of the moment and organic, and um, let's just give this a go. But the, when you're working in the Star Wars universe, uh, everything really has to have a logic uh, and a reason for being on 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 camera. You know, there's going to be a lot a lot of scrutiny uh, over every. Uh, square inch of the frame, as, as you guys are very familiar <laughs> with this concept. Uh, and so you want to make sure that uh, things are there for a reason. So I, I would say there wasn't so much uh, accents, but just uh, lots of lots of deep thinking. I really love the prison arc. I think Narkina 5 is very different from what I think most people would imagine a prison to be. It's bright, it's clean, there's no bars, there's no real guard presence, yet it's still completely oppressive. So how did you design the prison and the costumes, the entire look to sell this idea that the inmates are being constantly monitored when in reality, nobody's listening? And what does the design of oppression look like to you? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, and the prison for me was always like a, a cross between an abattoir and a laboratory. Uh, and yet also is, a, is a, like a labor camp, essentially, uh, that you can't escape from. It's like Alcatraz, but if Alcatraz was a lab. <laughs> so um, it, it, I just find that more interesting. I mean, it, right from the beginning when we talked about a prison and we looked at panopticons and things like that and that logic of how we could make the organic material of the people be the thing that turns the machine, uh, they're the disposable element was what, what that came from. So I, I think it's just way more interesting to go with something more sterile and, and stark. Uh, it's more sinister, it's more creepy, it's more THX 1138, which was a good reference, when, which we started with for the, the prison. So uh, then say something grungy and obvious for, for a prisoner. I think, I don't know much you've seen, uh, but as that builds that story, uh, it will make more sense as well. Uh, again, it's like, I, I actually really love working, making white sets as well. I think they, they photograph beautifully. I think things pop more. I think they have a sinister nature, which I think is, was just, I don't know. It just, it just felt more interesting for that part of the show. When you look at how we break down these blocks and, you know, the earthiness of Ferrix against the sort of organicness of the highlands which is like our version of the desert and then this kind of trap sterility of the prison uh yeah it it, it started there and then it evolved and and, and um i think for us we luke and i sort of talked about you know how do those who wield the power like the empire how do they, how do they use environment and color to oppress and intimidate and disorientate and i think this palette of white on white is like there's nowhere to hide. It's quite horrific. You you lose your sense of depth because all you can see is white on white. So it's you're sort of you're disempowered uh, by this soul soul destroying uh, environment. So we spent lots of time also developing a fabric that felt very utilitarian, disposable. It feels like they just peel them off at the end of the day. They're treated like cattle, hosed down, sterilized, and then they're given a, a fresh one for the next day. So I kind of like all of these tiny little details that would eat away at you psychologically as a as a prisoner um they they were sort of brought into the details of the costume andor's got such a, a great visual style very very unique it's star wars without being star wars how close did you want to get 
to what we've seen already in Star Wars? And what motifs did you know you wanted to work in when creating the world of Andor? I don't think we ever started that way around. I think when I first met Tony, it was almost like, okay, we're going to make a Star Wars show, but it's it's not going to be like any Star Wars show that you've made, you've watched kind of thing. So, which is exciting anyway, it's just challenging. It's, a, it's a really hard when you start realizing that that means going into people's apartments and checking out their bathrooms and going to work with them and uh, <laughs> keeping the tangibility of the original three movies and then looking at Rogue One, uh, the sort of grittiness of that, finding a sense of modernity that that could compete with other shows and also make uh, work with the drama and the writing of what Tony puts together and the character-led sort of drama, but maintaining the sense of nostalgia that I think Star Wars holds so well without wanting it to become like, and I'm not saying other shows do this at all, but that was, that was partly a fear. You know, it's very easy to slip into selecting things as if from a catalog of Star Wars in order for it to just feel Star Wars. I don't think any of us ever wanted to do that. Uh, I certainly know Michael and I didn't want to do that. It, it was about enhancing what was there uh, and then fleshing it out to make it feel uh, like you really could walk and live in this universe with these people and hopefully forget about it at times, forget that maybe you're watching Star Wars uh, and then be reminded now and again. That was kind of the, the goal anyway. Yeah, I think we knew as soon as we read the scripts that we would have to take a, a new approach to our, our to creating the visuals for this um, project. You know, all of uh, Tony's characters are so you know, detailed and complex, messed up, you know, it's, they couldn't afford to be just like two-dimensional costuming. Every sort of detail and layer uh, had to be thought about, you know, the, the choices would be practical character driven and not ornamental or uh, added on. So, which really uh, worked for me because that's the way that I, I love to work as well. But there was certainly, you know, what incredible established costume language there is for Star Wars already. 40 years of incredible design of some of the most talented costume designers on the planet sort of contributing their vision to, to the, the what a Star Wars world looks like. So it was, you know, amazing to have an opportunity to take my, have my own take on, on that world. And so we, we wanted to definitely, you know, use the presence of things like the established uniforms and the armor to ground us really firmly into the Star Wars um, world. They, they would do a lot of work for us to sort of show the audience that yes, this is a world that they knew. Um, but then that gave us the opportunity to leap off with some of our other characters and um, try some some new ideas and show audiences um, uh, some, some new compelling and surprising uh, costume ideas. Awesome. Hi, I'm Brandon from Talking Bay 94. It's great to talk with you both. Um, I would love to, one of the things that stands out to me from other Star Wars things is we see a lot of personal rooms and personal belongings in this show, right? And I think it's kind of a, a cross with a lot of these characters, right? You see Cassian's room, you see Cyril's, you see all these like actual personal belongings. And I'd be interested with both the production design of it all, but then also feeling comfortable in someone's apartment with the costuming and with actually like laying out how someone is in their own home. How do you approach that? And what were you trying to communicate with some of these characters when we delve into their personal lives? Uh, I think Mar sort of Marvis, for example, the idea behind that was uh, you had the sense of a home that was fully functioning, you know, when Cassian was younger, when she raised her and he's grown up and he's kind of grifting and she's lost her husband and the business is shut down. And there's that sort of centralizing around her 
her chair <laughs> that that's her world is literally getting smaller and she can't cope with the pace and it's like and then i was saying with Edie's apartment i think you know it's almost like she bought it was box fresh you could get upgrades and plugins to the apartment and then over time it's just it's aged and become a bit more baker-like over time and it, i mean rebecca as well said does a really fantastic job of just sort of getting under the skin of what people would have because it was kind of paper and can't do the normal sort of texture of life so we have to be very selective and actually more thoughtful like so in Edie's we're really cooked into this idea that she has this home salon in the corner which you never see in season one <laughs> but it's there and she sort of it's like a Star Wars version with a sort of like hair, hair do kind of set up all these things that actually feel um, relatable and yet also in a Star Wars language I think you know it's an endless conversation it's a fantastic question actually but it, yeah, it, it's always character, it always starts from the character. And I think from my point of view, um, I agreed, I have to chime in with that. It, it starts with the character. And I, I mean, the joy of working with Luke is that I feel like you design spaces like the character would design the spaces. It's like you, you think so much about who they are and what they want to project with their interiors. And I, I try to do the same with um, with with the costumes. Um, so, you know, if it's the difference between wearing something tight and structured and how that makes you feel compared to something like layers that you can disappear in like we see Cassian at the beginning disappearing into his clothes hiding then his arc throughout the, the series is to become closer to the hero that we know from Rogue One so you know his subtly little bit by little bit his his coats become a bit more tailored he's less hiding he's revealing himself a little more perhaps longer lines the, the, the shoulders square out so it's this very subtle um subliminal transformation that that he's going through um so it's it's things like that like how how do clothes make me feel what do they say about what i'm trying to achieve in this scene how i'm feeling on this day all of those very personal tweaks i um i incorporate into my costume design work so to Michael, I'd like to ask, please, about Cyril's unique costuming and um, the way that he tailors all his own um, costumes, because, I mean, obviously there's a big thing made about that in the show. And um, I'm just wondering if there's anything more to that, because it's I mean, obviously it's very much part of his character, but it, it comes across and it's, you know. And then to Luke, obviously, um, I loved your work on Chernobyl and, um, you know, that was that was incredible. And I see quite a lot of what you did there is very, very similar in Andor because you've got you're seeing people up front and personal, some of the things that you've already described. So how do, how do you go about coming from a show like that um, to Star Wars? Um, what's what's the juxtaposition there? And, 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 and how did you go about that into into you know, coming off something as big as that where you're telling a real story into something like this? I'm really glad you picked up on the pre-more uniforms because I really enjoyed creating them. Usually uniforms are like that, exactly that. They're uniform and they everyone looks the same in them. But with Preox, I wanted to explore that, you know, even within a uniform, you can people find ways of expressing themselves. And so we have the schlumpy guys that are working out in the bullpen, those jaded office workers that are just like not at all engaged and they are. We we sort of uh, enzyme washed their costumes so they were faded out and not ironed and um, no pride in their appearance. At the other end of the spectrum, you have Cyril, who 
tailors he makes his costumes he he makes small tweaks to them personalizes them so that they're more expressive of what he wants to project uh, and who he wants to be so he's got this very fastidious approach to costuming so we made his costume subtly more um i guess more rigid more sculpted uh freshly pressed a slightly brighter color so even within this world of uniforms we're hopefully able to do a bit of storytelling about the different people in the scene the process is the same with every project whether whatever the whatever it is um the similarities between doing a project like chernobyl and, and and a star wars project generally i think is that it's there's a lot of research it's still it's almost like researching a period or an event um there's a lot i mean there's an endless amount in star wars it's it's, it's a life of its own it's, it really is it's like so you want to distill that but you don't want to get lost in it in the same way with chernobyl you want to just a mood without getting lost in being documentarian completely. Uh, so, I mean, Chernobyl's, although fantastically rewarding, incredibly hard, but um, the difference there was, I guess we had five very fleshed out scripts. When we started Star Wars, Tony was taking it on at the same time I just started. So we were, we were literally building it at the same time as he was writing, but still, yeah, it's it's the same principle. So it's uh, it's about character and environment and, and and storytelling, and then it's about mood and tone. And so with Chernobyl, it was like you could tell the story a thousand different ways, but it has to have a tone, um, uh, which you know otherwise, yeah, you can make a documentary, but we're not. We're making drama. And the same with this. It's like we wanted this to have an almost sort of doc or journalistic logic. So you approach it like you're dealing with building up every character's reality and yet at the same time we're making uh, obviously fiction <laughs> obviously a drama so um in that sense i don't think there's any difference i i, I obviously the material's a lot lighter well at times uh <laughs> on star wars but the uh, and uh and the worlds are greater and more varied it, it both were rabbit holes to be honest <laughs> from a design point of view and i think the biggest thing they 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 have in common is that i never felt like i you only ever run out of time i could layer these sets for much longer i could create you know i'd love to go further but you run out of time and you have to shoot them at some point um and uh so i don't know it, it is a it's actually been hugely enjoyable to work on or play in the sandpit of Star Wars because uh, it's not something I expected to do. Certainly not something I expected to do next. Um, yeah, I do really appreciate how different it is in the terms of its actual source material, um, but also how actually freeing it's been to be able to do it in a way that is okay. But I don't. I mean, like oh, I'm going to say, we wanted it to be fresh, you know, and I hopefully we've achieved some semblance of that. That that's been both the challenge and the satisfaction, if that makes sense. There's a lot of real-world locations in Andor. You filmed in Cleveland. There's stuff around by the Barbican. I was walking around the other day and found some of the places there. Or when location scouting's done and your work's done, what's the consideration for making it work as a location, work for ILM, work for easy access? Is there a lot of different things you've got to factor in? Or do you just literally look and go, I like that corridor. I want, to, I want us to film down there and work in. How does it work? Certainly not the latter. 
I think it's again, it goes back to like where we when we put this project together, we were offering things up as well as designs we were offering up locations. I love working on and building on location, and we ideally would have done a lot more. It's quite hard to take such a large unit on location, but it's also quite hard, especially when you're doing a pandemic. So we we kind of ended up building a lot more than maybe we initially intended. But um there was sort of some basic principles, really. I didn't want to do a desert, but I wanted something where the landscape spoke for itself. And so like, well, what if we had a planet that felt like the Scottish Highlands, you know? So that was a good starting point as a, and then we were looking at dams and we found one in particular that always just felt like such a blight on the landscape. Um, they're gonna love me for saying that, uh, that uh, it just felt very imperial as a kind of logic. And so that whole Al Downey sequence came based around that idea that there, that was an imperial stronghold there and so on and so on and so on and and so um it's it's actually quite a big question because coruscant like i said was one of the hardest things we had to do and i at barbican i've always felt had the both the weight and the texture that felt right for a mega city like coruscant but also felt right for a certain level at the mid level of coruscant um obviously there is work within there but we never sort of approached the location on the basis of you know we didn't concept something and moen who's a vfx supervisor who's, who's like literally with us from day one like he is a massive part of this show has great taste um so it's never led by that it's always about how can we enhance this real place or how can we put it within the wider world of coruscant how can we do shots that you would do in a real city and not in a cgi environment so it's like it's a huge question, but um, I always said that the best place to shoot Coruscant would be Paris because you've got both the scale and the sort of uh, like uh, the style of certain aspects of Coruscant. It's slim pickings in London, I've got to tell you. But uh, uh, and then and then and then and then I don't know. I mean, uh, is that getting close to answering your question? <laughs> I think so. It just struck me as we were walking around. There was. You know, you'd literally turn around. There was one corridor there that we turned around when Vel and Clayla met, and then there's the steps when they had the meeting, and then you walk a little bit, and there's the corridor, and you just picked like a doorway, literally mm. just a doorway, and everything else was changed. I'm just thinking of you guys walking around, thinking that doorway looks good, that corridor. Looks good. <laughs> I mean, know? basically, yeah, with the Barbican, yeah, you're a little more limited, you're a little bit more like uh, what's the targeted, I suppose. Yeah. But I guess what I was always looking for when piecing together Coruscant was journeys. So again, it wasn't like, oh, let's stand here and have a conversation with the city in the background or something like yeah. that. So Barbican is actually gives you a lot in terms of journeys. Um, the Cyril going home uh, is one of my favourites, I think. It's at, um, I can't remember the name of the place now. Um, that's in London and it's, uh, it, it is, it's, a, it's like a brutalist estate. And um, yeah, I mean, all we really did was sort of make it go much further down and, and give it that elevation and, uh, uh, and and that sort of sense of depression, I suppose. But um, yeah, it's it's really hard. Like I want to shoot more on location. Off, more often than not, we pull back from doing a location. We use in location as an inspiration. I mean, for me, location scouting is one of the most inspiring things to do. But the, um, yeah, I mean, look, our location manager, Rich, he's sort of like, he's worked very hard to find things that feel or at least have the bones of star wars and then yeah. we kind of go from there <laughs> <laughs> we're both so interested in the growth that's happening in both of your respective fields luke and michael um and how that's expanding yeah so like with the volume for example dominating so many 
sort of entertainment conversations. Uh, what are some perhaps uh, under-discussed artistic or technological innovations in the world of production and costume design that we may not know about, but played a huge role in creating Andor? Oh, Michael, do you want to go first? Because I know you've got a... Um, yeah, interesting question. I think for me, because we were kind of leaning um, heavily into the the, the DNA of, of, this, of this, the look of the Star Wars um, established costume language, it's, it's actually quite an analog costume, you know, approach. Uh, well, it's a mixture, in fact. Like, there is things that would have been groundbreaking in 1977, uh, as far as the costumes go, um, that seem not so groundbreaking now. Um, but we, we kind of liked to have that as a starting point. We, we had a similar approach with this one. We, there were lots of handmade, like, old-school analog-created costumes but we also have a fantastic uh, costume props department that is using new technologies, new, new materials um, to create um, mostly armored elements or um, you know, small sculpted elements that you see on costuming. Uh, there's lots of 3D printing that happens, scanning of things and then adapting things. Uh, we're constantly trying new urethanes and different uh, materials that might make more comfortable armor. We made a um, a lot of the the problem with the original stormtroopers is that they um they changed color over over time the, and the the white of the originals turned yellow over the years and and it was also quite rigid and difficult to do certain stunts like moves in so yeah we explored some new new materials to make our um, stormtroopers that would stay white forever and that would be uncomfortable for our stunt people to wear uh, and uh, so yeah, it's a very beautiful and organic mixture of uh, analog and 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 new costume making uh, techniques. So fully agree with that. I'd say we're um, no, we're not doing anything groundbreaking in the art department here, but uh, <laughs> I think just it was an active choice not to use the volume. It doesn't suit our goal. Uh, it certainly doesn't suit Tony's writing. So the idea is to be on the ground and moving around with the characters as much as possible, not creating sort of spaces for scenes to happen in, if that makes sense. So actually, it is something that actually can do more with a long episodic drama like this or multi-episodic drama. You build just bigger sets that you can just connect them up. I mean, it, it's it's sort of, um, I think Ferrix was comprised of almost 30 sets. They're all largely out on the back lot as one large composite set. So you could literally walk down North Street, round onto the main street, down there, round to Marvers, into Marvers. You know, it, 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 that, that process was, although complex, was very enjoyable. And I suppose the most <laughs> modern part of that is, is that we, like with any of the sets, I would usually just start by designing the whole thing. So design the city, design the prison in full, design, and then start to break it down and what we want to use, how, what bits we want to build. At least then we understand the full geography. We understand right. our rules. Um, and I think that filters through, even if you don't see it all, you, you don't, it doesn't hopefully jar at any point. So, I mean, and then a huge element of that is like, you know, if you're going to go that step, we, we sort of model everything. It was just actually, that was another thing we did on Chernobyl. We built the whole power plant and sort of worked out what we actually needed to physically make. And, and likewise uh, with Ferrix, and then we can kind of previs from that. So a director, when we've got many directors can start to actually plan because you know the set's not going to be standing there for them to plan on there's not really we don't follow a pipeline like they do over in on manhattan beach for for the for the volume shows at all 
uh, we don't have that aspect. We're much more, I suppose, analog is 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 kind of, you know, it, then that feeds into what we wanted to achieve. You know, we want we wanted it to feel a little bit like the original movies in the sense that it was tangible, more like that. So. Um, no, I mean, I'm still working out how to do my job with every project. And that's part of the beauty of my job and why I enjoy it. I think once I've figured out how to do it, I'll be bored of it. So uh, it's, um, it's no, it, it, like I said, it, it, it's a complexity with this is that you've got so many other facets. You've got creatures, special effects, sliding doors, you know, um, vehicles that, that have to hover or whatever. So everything has to be designed. I think that's the, the thing that sometimes gets for, forgotten with this. We're not. Like I said, we're in our ambition to not select from the catalogue. We have set ourselves a huge task that everything has to be designed and made. So there's no uh, mystery to it. I just have a very good team. (laughs) 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 Very, very skilled and clever people around me. And and I, uh, yes, I'm I'm hugely humble to them for being able to achieve a show like that. Thank you so much to this entire crew for being so fantastic, as well as Lillian and the rest of the Lucasfilm team for helping coordinate this interview. In case you missed our previous interviews with the cast of Andor, the links to those episodes are in the show notes. More episodes are coming very soon. Next week is Kristen Baber. If you're enjoying this, please head to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to these episodes and leave us a five-star rating and review. It really means the world. That's all for now. Until next week, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the Force be with you.